Hello and welcome to the Orca podcast audiobook, episode 3 and chapter 3. Sorry for the delay in this episode, we've just sailed from the UK to France and it's taken us a while to settle in. In this chapter of Orca, John and Kara have to escape a tsunami, survive a minor shipwreck, haul in a huge fish and most importantly, buy beer. And their surfing adventures in Mexico continue. Also, I had such a good time talking to James Tomlinson in the previous episode that I've included more of our chat here. If you are a serious sailor, listen closely, there are hidden gems. If you are not, he's just a thoroughly interesting chap. For example, one thing he would never tell you, his father was the actor David Tomlinson, who played Mr. Banks in Mary Poppins, as well as starring in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and my favourite, The Love Bug, or as I remember it, Herbie. You can watch his sailing videos on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just look up Samingo Sailing. John's book is available on Amazon and as an ebook. Search for Orca by John Pennington. Thank you for listening. Episode 4 should be out next month, featuring a special guest again. I've only ever had one talisker. Right. Um, and I discovered why she's talisker one, because okay. I, I, I was approaching Wick Harbour, and the, the harbour master there, Malcolm Bramner, said, you're not welcome in here, you talisker. And I said, uh, why? He said, well, every time you come here, you misbehave. And I said, well, what do you mean I misbehave? I've never been anywhere near Scotland in a boat before. <laughs> oh, but you're called talisker. Yes, he said. Well, apparently there was a Talisker who had been banned from every marina in Scotland. I don't know what he does. <laughs> Drink on. Um, and so the previous owners who had kept that boat on the west coast of Scotland, where I found her in 2014, had called her Talisker 1, so they wouldn't be mixed up Obviously. with the Talisker. But I had a boat called Samingo 2, and there was no Samingo 1 or Samingo or anything like that. Yeah. I bought the boat and she was called Samingo. I've never changed the name of a boat, you see. Mm. So for the boat, as long as it's not something stupid. Well, that's our problem. <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with the name of your boat. <laughs> it could be worse. Pas de deux. Pas de deux. It could be worse. So I bought Talisker in 2014. Okay. Intending to go further. What was, the, what was the last one? That's a, that's a westerly, isn't it? That's, that's a, west, a very rare westerly. It's a, it's a typhoon. Um, she's 37 foot and it was supposed to be the um, Westerly's greatest achievement and I think it was probably there's a, a it's um, it, it's supposed to be the best boat they made what year it's regarded it? as the best boat they made that that's 91 they were built between oh. 89 and 92 it's a Dubois design oh, right. but um, she was designed as an ocean racer okay um, but really, she's just a very fast cruiser. Mm. Um, so she's a bit of a mile eater. She's very, very stable, very low center of gravity. She's great in the ocean. Um, she can be reefed right down to nothing. Mm. She's. I wanted a boat that could would sail well to windward, um, and she does. She sails well on, on all points, but I did want something that would sail well to windward. Mm. Um, 
and she and she does that she gets stopped by nothing it's uh it's incredibly good and she sails in light airs and i didn't want to i have a i have a cruising shoot oh, okay yeah. i have a cruising shoot but most of the time offshore you know it's uh, it's uh in the portuguese trades i was downwind and in sixes mostly sixes and sevens and it, I, I just had a pulled out a handkerchief of Genoa and the and the main on a preventer triple reefed and we were doing 200 miles a day so um, <laughs> she, so she is a quick boat yeah um and and to windward she goes very well as well so how long have you been sailing then uh well I've been boating all my life what's the difference um, I started sailing properly in 1998 when I moved to the coast. Okay. So I was boating. So as as, as a child, we were yeah. brought up with with motorboats and things like oh, that. Oh right. So we were holidaying with motorboats well and water skiing, a tiny little bit. Mm. But it wasn't until I started. I I started. I bought my first cruising boat in 1998. Okay. Was that Samingo or was that? Samingo? No, it was a boat called Rosie J. It was a Westerly Centaur. Oh yeah. Um. And uh, I had that for two years mm. and, and just started to sail on the Thames Estuary. So okay. Just started to find my way around mm. rather, um, rather dangerously explored. I want to hear about that. <laughs> rather, rather dangerously explored. No, I was terribly, terribly lucky. Yeah. I was lucky to have the first, when I bought uh, Rosie J in 1998, um, somebody who'd done a tiny bit of work on her. Uh, his stepson, a chap called Simon Abley, who was then 22 and fresh out of Plymouth University, had already done a couple of Atlantic crossings, was a veteran East Coast sailor around here. Mm. And he was fairly free after university. And he spent every weekend of 1998 and 99 with my little daughter Hannah and me and Rosie J. Mm. So I got off to an absolute flyer mm. with Simon coming sailing with me every weekend. Fantastic. And so I didn't really have a chance to make too many mistakes with, um, and Simon was a fantastic teacher. Okay. Absolutely fantastic. And that, to get a start like that and to be shown, uh, uh, today, I mean, Simon's still a great mate. He's, uh, he's 40, how old is Simon now? 44, 44. Oh, okay. Um, he's, um, you know, he's done Fastnets and Sydney Hobarts and, and all sorts and uh, a couple more Atlantic crossings. But he's uh, to get to to have to have him as a as a teacher was for the first two years. So we did quite a lot. Was it hard with him? Or was it just fun? Or was it fun? Always fun. Oh, okay. Always yeah. fun, and I was allowed to do everything. I mean, he, yeah, he let me do it. But the best thing about teaching is to make you you, you intervene if somebody mm. is going to do something. Bad. <laughs> if you're going to hit another boat, then you probably try to prevent them from doing it. You, you see that coming, like like all good sea sailors, you're way ahead of it. No, no, he he. Um, I I, I had to do everything. Well, I think I was reasonably quick. Now. And your daughter enjoyed it too. Or? Yeah, she was little. I mean, yeah. she was tiny at the time, so she she um she used to bring a, a friend every weekend Wait, how old was she was she on 10 or so in 1998 she was eight yeah okay. so every weekend she'd she would bring a pal yeah. and she was straight in the forepeak of this tiny little um <laughs> tiny little but she was 26 footer actually so it wasn't it wasn't tiny bilge keeler an appalling sailing boat 
but a very sturdy little ship. They right. Westerly built. I'm, I'm not a West. I'm not a fan of Westerly. Um, but it. Um, and there's no reason. But I had a Rosie Jag or a Westerly Typhoon. That's got. That's not. That's not connected. Mm. Um, uh, they sound very different, anyway. Very very different. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're not the same boat at all. No. Um, but she was a very very safe boat. Heavily built, and West it was Westley's most successful was cruising take boat. To the ground or not? Sorry, could you take to ground the bilge keeler? Or as long as the ground was flat underneath. <laughs> <laughs> That's the mistake with the bilge keeler. Everyone yeah. thinks, "Oh, I can go aground with that," but if the, if the bottom's like that, you can't. But I've heard of someone stressing. I wasn't sure if it was Westley's or not. But... Yeah, it's, if she was a little bilge keeler. Yeah, uh, and strangely enough, 1999. I think Simon and I were on our own. We were sailing. It seemed like a very long passage in those days from the mouth of the Deben to we were going to Levington. It was it was very cold and Simon was un, unusually grumpy. <laughs> uh, very 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 was you grumpy and we were just outside the Deben and he said uh, he said this, this boat's bloody hopeless. He said it's hopeless. I said, which boat? Thing, look, scanning the horizon, <laughs> looking to see if I could see a boat. He said, this thing. It's 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 a it's a bathtub with a it's a bathtub with a stick stick on it time for a new boat and so wow. and i have to say at the end of 99 i knew that it didn't it wasn't going to do me as far as my um, sort of progressing a little bit more to the next stage so i then had the bigger sister of that so i had a wesley consort Again, another bilge keeler. Yeah. That only lasted two years, and I did a little bit more with that. Right. But at the same time, I was very, very busy with work. So I, yeah. although I was able to sail most weekends, I couldn't. I could never go very far. So, okay. but exploring round here, as you know yourselves from sailing in this in this area for eight, two years. Have you been two years? Mm -hmm. two two years? years yeah. You've really, really got to time your arrivals and departures and you've got to know what's under the keel and you've got to understand mm. so it's a very very good training ground to yeah. sail within the estuary and really my cruising ground during those days was between Lurstoft and, and Ramsgate mm. within that okay. and dealing with uh, you know and dealing with the estuary with, with its all its swatchways and sandbanks and uh, river bars and tidal streams and and getting it right. Any big events that happened on these journeys? <sighs> uh, yeah, you always make. I mean, the you you you've got to make. You do make mistakes. Just don't make them again. <laughs> I always say, don't make a mistake you've read about, and don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah. Um, but I can't bear. Um, I mean, all my sailing, all, all all my sail sailing, really. Um, it's got to be each the, the passages have got to be uneventful. Mm. If they've been uneventful, it means they've been safe. Mm. And my favourite thing, I'm not very good at going out for the afternoon and sailing around the bay. I like to go from A to B. Doesn't matter how far or how and I want to go from A to B safely mm. and properly and do everything correctly. <laughs> I don't want to let the ship down. I'm the weakest link. Uh um the ship's not going to let me down. A sound boat won't let you down. It's always the crew that let the boat. So I, I don't want to let the boat down. So mm. safe sailing. Safe sailing. It's very undisciplined safe sailing. That does That's what I try to do. Who is your least favourite person on the water? <laughs> least favourite? 
Least favourite? <laughs> Gosh, I don't think anybody really. I try to avoid people. <laughs> if I see something coming, I get out of the way. Um, there's a bit, I think the problem, what's evolved over my time sailing is um, there are more people on the water who who there are more people on the water who don't know what they're doing i suppose it's the availability of boats and the and the cheapness of a new boat actually when you think about I it i haven't even tried to look at that yeah <laughs> but i mean so, so some of the new boats are, are inexpensive okay um and also the, also i'm 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 sad with uh, there was a time when um the coast guard was invariably um, an ex-master mariner mm. and now that's probably becoming less oh. so and there's slightly less knowledge there and I'm not in any way knocking the Coast Guard yeah. I think for Thames Coast Guard to go and now to be talking to a sound where they don't know who where you are what you're talking about I'm off awful you know when you used to call call Thames and say you were off the Deven bar they knew exactly where you were you sure. could describe yeah. where you were and they knew where you were and they knew what the conditions would be like mm. and that leads to harbour staff as well invariably they were retired fishermen they were retired master mariners so um you had you know I'm looking at Brightlings here but there, there was a time when the the, the, the harbour masters there when I first met there they were all they were all master mariners mm. Um, and that's I'm not knocking the people who are there now, but it's all changing slightly. Yeah, it's changing. And then the um, you know you've got the lifeboat crews that are no longer fishermen that who knew the waters back to front. And I'm not knocking the training of the lifeboat crews, which is very very good still, mm. but um, they're not they don't have the sea deep in their blood like like, yeah. like, like it used to okay. like it used to be, um, but it's still. It's still lovely, lovely out here, isn't it? Right now, it's lovely. It's absolutely silent. Um, <laughs> absolutely still and silent. Wonderful. All you need is the chair. All you need is the tie to turn for that all that to go away. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't hate anyone. I don't hate anybody anyway. I think I said hate. I'm not very good. Did you say hate? <laughs> hate. Who do you hate? I said, I was wondering if Why do you say on your own? I don't like people. I was wondering if catamarans might come up. No, um, no. And what are you doing this year? Because you've just come back on the water. What's the plan? My plan. Very, I'd hoped. I'd hope to get to Shetland oh, okay. uh, at the. I was hoping to get to Shetland by probably about the twentieth of May. And I was hoping to go to Faroe and perhaps to Iceland. And I would have been back around now. I reckon I would have been coming coming back down the East Coast or mm. wherever about now. It's all, all weather dependent. You never know what's going on. You never know how long it's going to take you to get up there. Mm. But that, that was what, what I was hoping to do. And because of COVID, I'm not going. I'm not leaving the Thames Estuary. Oh, okay. I'm not risking yeah. leaving. Uh, when we all get the lot. And there's, no, there's certainly no time. It's too late in the season to go, go north. Mm. Um, but that was the plan to go. I might, I might, I might, go, I might go to the west country if there's a, a window. Where do you like down there? So well, I've got. Uh, I, I just go down to Falmouth where the family are. So, oh, okay. where all the children are. Yeah, Alfie lives down there. So I might sail to Falmouth. But coastal sailing for a single hander is is quite 
quite hard work. You've got to stop. Mm. Um, you can't you can't sleep when there's land and traffic. Mm. So for me, going down there on my own, I wouldn't do that. I, I wouldn't do that without stopping, without lots of stops. Yeah. yeah. So Ramsgate, Eastbourne, Solent, Portland, you know, you, you, you stop and rest. Mm. Um, so that, that that's the disadvantage of uh, the disadvantage of, uh, of sailing alone is knowing your limits when you're doing coastal sailing, coastal passages. Actually, this this follows that quite well because solo sailing is a whole different thing. Yeah, it's no more skilled. Mm. People say, "Oh, you sail alone? Gosh, did you do that? You were on your own." Like, wow, it's a different discipline. Mm. It's no no more clever to say it being a really good member of a crew, mm. but it is a completely different discipline and needs to be learned. Mm. Um, so, take for granted you can know how to handle your boat. You know how to sail. So that's for a member of a crew, a skipper of a boat with, with a crew, or the single, take for, take for granted that you know how to physically sail the boat. The single-hander has to look after himself first, him or herself first, otherwise they cannot look after the boat. Mm. If they're disabled, the boat is disabled. So you've got um, your physical health, and looking after yourself and getting enough sleep. Sleep is the crucial thing. Mm. If you don't get enough sleep, you're done for. And that's why the coastal passages, you've got to know how far you can go before you've got to get in and sleep. Yeah. So a good example would be going north from here, Lerstoft. Going north, you've probably got 30 hours before you get to somewhere like Scarborough or, yeah. or Whitby. And that's on the that's 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 doable okay. for me, knowing that I can stop. Right, and then you have that caffeine fix before you arrive. Yeah, but it's very quiet. You know, you you might have little five minute cat naps in the oh, room, right. but, yeah. but you're sitting actually in the cockpit underneath the spray hood with the alarm going every yeah, five minutes. Know. But that's um, only if it's quiet and. Uh, um, you've got to be very, very careful. And along with that, has there ever been a time where you thought, enough's enough, I'm going to quit? Or is it yeah, but you, the, the, <laughs> it, it's all in, again, that, 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 that's in the learning. It, that, that's in the learning. Um, I've been cold and seasick offshore <laughs> once. Okay, wow. And I was 40 miles from land. Yeah. And it was quite a long time ago. And I thought, well, I'll be seasick many times again, but I vow never, ever to be cold again. <laughs> you, to get cold on a boat. Yeah. And that's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very dangerous. I vowed never, ever to be cold again. And that's when you... And, of course, you, 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 get, you, you get in eventually, and by the time you, you, moment you get in, you stop feeling sick, you're warm, you're, and then you think, oh, that wasn't too bad, you know. A terrible thing when, <laughs> you, when you get in there. But at that moment, you go, if somebody could just pluck me out of here and and put me on off. the land and put me in <laughs> put me in the warmth, and I never see another boat, that would be fine. Chapter three. It was a downhill run to Mexico and with the fair wind my spirit soared. All sailors have weather-dependent bipolar disorder to some degree. I have a severe case. In poor weather and contrary winds, 
managing morale can be more difficult than managing the boat. Not today, though. Mariachi tunes blared from the stereo all afternoon and blasted down the coast all night. We pulled into Ensenada's shipping hub the next morning, puttering down the alleys between the crews and cargo ships. We didn't know where to go until a skiff pulled alongside. It was filled with Mexicans drinking cervezas. The driver spoke rapidly in Spanish and pointed down to his hull, where scratched and faded letters might have once read, Policia del Puerto. I caught that we should proceed to the exorbitantly priced marina on the far side of the harbour. The dock slanted dangerously and waves sloshed into the treacherous walkway. The moored boats rolled like they were still at sea and every fender on every boat in the marina had succumbed to the punishment. The man at the desk showed a suspicious family resemblance to the driver of the police boat but he was kind, helped us with our paperwork and sent us off to the port clearance offices across town. I was very nervous about this part. Border police are notoriously unforgiving towards foreign sailboats, probably because these boats could, if they wanted, be very slippery. Sailors can arrive anywhere, leave at any time and cover huge distances carrying large cargoes, all undetected. In response, most countries look to reams of paperwork and drastic rot-in-prison-forever threats to keep sailors in line. According to my research, when arriving in a new country, there are typically two things to do. Import the boat and import yourself. Efficient countries have a single official who will process the paperwork quickly. Mexico does not. I walked into the port offices where there were a vast number of desks and a legion of agents using stamps and vintage typewriters. I moved into a line which was long. At sea the night before I hadn't slept much, my patience was short. My turn came, I pulled myself together. Hola amigo, I said, flashing my most winning smile. Just arrived from... Passport! I handed it over. The boarding little man stamped it violently in the crease without looking. You have ninety days, welcome to Mexico, he droned. This might not be so bad after all, I thought. We moved to an owlish lady at customs displaying our stamped passports. She appraised me suspiciously. Has your yacht been through agriculture? Health inspection? Have you seen the port captain? Have you an import permit for your yacht? I cannot process you until you do. I moved to the next window. Agriculture. They'd need three copies of Orca's registration papers. Luckily, there was an overpriced copy shop in the same building. We went back to agriculture with the copies. The lady at the desk filled out a form, stamped it in green and handed it to me. Somehow, the agriculture inspection was complete. The cost of the procedure was 150 pesos. 
I whipped out my wallet. No, no, senor, we cannot accept money. That would be bribery, you see. That window over there, she gestured across the hall, is un banco. Pay them. They will give you a receipt. Then you make three copies and give one to me. Save the other two. You'll need those later. I sighed and returned to the copy shop. Flushed with success, I moved to health, then the port captain's office. I had dozens of bank receipts and papers stamped in six colours by now, and Kara was feeling faint with hunger. I could see the light at the end. We could still finish before the office closed. I went back to the customs woman and slapped our stack down on the desk. She started to rifle through. Lo siento, senor. The third copy of your agriculture clearance is not properly stamped. See the edge of this green stamp here? Not enough ink. You must go back. I was about to blow. Laughter or anger, I wasn't sure. Kara looked pale, one hand on her forehead, one on her stomach. We went back to agriculture. The staff had changed shifts. The new guy didn't understand where we were in the process of processing. But your papers are finished, senor. I struggled to make him understand. The lady over there, she doesn't like something about the third copy. Fix it. I was desperate. He didn't get it. Al was watching. She sighed and got up, lumbered over, and said something in quick Spanish. The new agriculture guy went whack, whack, whack with his stamp, and we followed the owl back to her desk. Congratulations, your yacht is now imported. The permit is good for ten years. But our visas are only good for ninety days. Why ten years? She glared at me. I require three copies of the permit I just gave you. Kara had melted onto a bench in the corner. I skipped back over to the copy shop, gleeful. Progress didn't last. The copy shop guy looked apologetic. Lo siento, senor. The machine, he is broken. I will call you when it's fixed. I dragged myself to the bench and collapsed, dejected. So close. I was even starting to feel a bit hungry myself. Al caught my eye, feathery eyebrow arched. Where are the copies? I am waiting. I explained, Ay, madre de Dios. It is five o'clock. Give me the stupid permit. She went to the back corner of her office. I peered into the shadows. She was popping the lid on a state-of-the-art copy machine. Zip, zip, zip. Now follow me. She led us to a secret back room where we approached a polished, full-sized traffic light on a six-foot yellow pedestal. Push this button. If the light turns green, you may leave. If it turns red, more inspections will be required. For an additional fee, of course. There was reverence in her voice. My heart accelerated. I'd made it to the inner sanctum, but was I worthy? I mashed the big tomato button, worn by years of supplicants. There was an artful pause. 
and the light flashed green. We were through. I slept poorly. The fenders ground against the jagged docks, the lines creaked and surged, and the chop slapped incessantly against Orca's transom. At 6am there was urgent knocking at the hull. I stuck my sleepy consciousness out into the rain. It was the guy from two births over. Jack had been strangely cordial the evening before. I'd been exhausted and irritable. Hey, have you heard? No. There was an 8.8 earthquake in Chile. The tsunami's going to be here in five hours. It was a bit early for this information. I stared blankly, but secretly I was wondering if all crises occurred at dawn. He continued. My phone's ringing off the hook. All my family on Kauai have been evacuated. we got to get out of here. I looked around. There was a cruise ship and two container ships still in the harbour. How long did you say? Five hours? I unrolled a chart. The continental shelf was close. We could make it to the safety of deep water in an hour. There's no food in our boat. Kara's going to be hungry. We can't go to sea without food. I'd rather face a massive tsunami than a starving, ferocious and highly unpredictable girlfriend. We'd been planning to stock up for cheap in Mexico anyway. We'd just have to move up our timetable. What's the weather look like? I flipped on the radio. We were still in range of the San Diego broadcast. It didn't sound good. Jack frowned. Front moving through. Gale warning. Did I hear southwest 30 knots? He wasn't happy. I concurred. Thunderstorms. It'll be worse in the squalls. It was a tight spot. We'd never sailed in conditions like that before. Kara and I conferred. We would prepare to leave, and if the cruise ship left, Orca would follow. The cruise line was probably getting the best information money could buy. With three hours to go, we hunched into the wind and rain towards the supermarket. Already the city streets were flooded. We gathered groceries as the rain poured down. As we paid, I tried playful banter to ease the tension. Nice day for a sale, right? Kara glared at me, soaking wet and entirely unamused. It was our turn at the register. I'm sorry, senor, we can't sell beer before noon. The cashier looked pointedly at our cart, groaning under cases of Tecate. It was a long way to the next port. I checked my watch. The tsunami would be here at eleven. There was no time. The situation had gone from bad to worse. I considered a bribe, but Kara had already started unloading the beer. Back at the harbour, the cruise ship and both container ships were gone. Other boats were streaming out of the bay. We cast off the dock lines and set lots of sail. The rain was heavy, but the wind was light. The radio squawked. It was Jack. He was just behind us. Orca, see that squall line out west? Looks dark. There still wasn't much wind. We needed to get offshore quickly for the tsunami. So I left all the sails up. 
coasting along easily. The squall line did look ominous, but I was inexperienced and underestimated it. Under the inky clouds, darkness raced along the water, wind rippling the mirror's surface. There was whiteness behind the darkness in the distance. The wind reached our spread of canvas, and Orca toppled 45 degrees. The steering vane was overwhelmed. I grabbed the wheel, wrestling. Kara, we need a reef in the mainsail yesterday. Make that too. Just get some sail down. Now fortified with a hearty breakfast, she was magnificent. Crawling along the side deck, she reached the mast and wrapped herself round it. She cracked the halyard and the sail started to drop. Then the whiteness reached us. The wind doubled, tripled, blowing water off the ocean. Mist swirled in eddies around the white swells. We were in the frozen tundra. Orca staggered, blizzard bubbling over the combings and into the cockpit. Poor Kara was working like mad to get the sails down. The rain was coming down in buckets, landing on the sails and funnelling onto her. She had her head sideways, breathing like a swimmer. I popped the main sheet, easing the sail, and put the wheel over. The canvas started flogging like mad, shaking the rig, but Orca came upright. Kara got the main down, double lashed to the boom and then the jib sail furled at the bow. We ran up the storm staysail, a little thing that flies near the mast, which we'd never used, hoped never to use. With the proper canvas up, the steering vane took over again, and we went below for rum. We tried Jack on the radio, but couldn't raise him. He turned back to take his chances with the tsunami. The weather didn't get worse, but it didn't get better. All night the seas grew. In Little Orca, in rough seas, I kept reminding myself that we are a ping-pong ball. We just bob around at the very top and nothing can hurt us. We get slapped, we bounce, we might even roll, but Orca is light and small and watertight. And I closed my eyes and tried not to think about how thin the skin of a ping-pong ball is. Or how, if we dropped a wrench over the side, it would take ten minutes to fall to the mud below, where it would never be seen again. We kept watch all night, three-hour shifts, just listening and feeling the boat. It was a thick, oily darkness. We turned on our deck light, hoping to avoid being run down by a freighter in the shipping lane. By morning the seas were much bigger, but not dangerous. It was a long swell, so only the very tops of the waves were crumbling. Orca was creeping slowly south, with her bow meeting the foam at an angle. The staysail flew, defiant but startlingly tiny, against the grey world. Occasionally we'd smack into a white cap, and Orca would ring like a bell. There would be a pause. The cabin would go dim as the foamy water covered the hatches and ports. Orca would shake herself off, the wave would drain back into the sea, and off we'd go again. By noon, the sea had shrunk and the cockpit was dry. We hoisted more sail, toasted Orca for looking after us, and pointed her towards the nearest beer.
The nearest beer was going to be found on Isla Cedros, a hell of a place. Cedros is a rock, a great dirty, dusty boulder. We anchored off ruddy cliffs and rowed ashore through the floating garbage slick, wandering the twisted cobblestone alleys. School finished and children saturated the streets, pointing and giggling. One called out, the only English she knew, Hello! I started to reply, but they all scurried into the shadows, shy. We found the main street, the Malacan. It was dirt. There was no need to pave, it never rained. Mud was no more common than snow. Sand swirled around the buildings, into the cracked and collapsed cinder blockhouses. The sun beat onto corrugated steel roofs, rusted to lace. The moisture was sucked away from my nostrils. The salt dried, tightening our skin. A wrinkled old man, drowsing under a sombrero, directed us to the only store in the village. It was dark inside the concrete-floored shop. Blessed relief. Shadows resolved into shelves all empty. A lonely packet of Kool-Aid comprised an entire section. Empty crates lined the wall, a few dry onion skins rustling at the bottom. How are these people still alive? There's nothing to eat on the entire island. All of Kara's worst nightmares were coming to life. I didn't know. The back of the shop was still in shadow. Let's press on. There has to be some calories somewhere. We crept into the darkness, around an empty bank of shelves. The shopkeeper saw where we were headed and flipped a switch. Cheap fluorescent lights flickered, then caught, settling into variations of migraine-inducing pulses. Illumination swept through the back room, and all of our questions were answered. There... Heaped before us in glory was a mountain of Tecate. The architect had drawn inspiration from Aztecs and Egyptians, culling the most reverently pious features from each. The base was structurally sound, four adjacent forklift pallets stacked to eye level with flats of cans. Above that, box 12 and 24 packs crested to eight feet, Beyond, up near the ceiling, the edifice was summited by glass bottles of assorted sizes. Surrounding the base of the Great Pyramid were banks of refrigerators along the walls, dozens of them, all filled with an unbroken wall of Tecate. Sure, there were choices. You could get the 12-ounce can, the 12-ounce bottle, the 6-pack, the 12-pack, the 24-pack or the flat of 36. If you wanted to look good for the senoritas, you could get a 40-ouncer, but you had to put a deposit down on the bottle. If you were in it for the long haul, you could invest, make a deposit on a dozen 40s, and do business by the crate. We were humbled. The entire town was living on beer, we bought a trifling flat of 36, completely outclassed.
there was wicked roll in the Cedrus anchorage that night. The next morning, we hauled anchor, rounded Isla Natividad, and dashed through a convoy of barges taking sea salt from the desert shallows out to a freighter. Pulling into Turtle Bay, we finally encountered another sailboat. A battered 45-foot sloop rode at anchor. Her jib hung in tatters and there were streaks and dents along her hull. On the beach, an elderly gentleman was taking apart his outboard motor on a retaining wall. We chatted for a moment, but he was sullen and bitter, which was understandable. The chop at Cedros came from a full onshore gale in Turtle Bay. Our friend's misadventures began when his dinghy took flight and started banging the side of the boat, causing the scratches and dents. He put it on a long line off stern, which quickly parted, sending his inflatable and outboard for an unscheduled night mission through the shore break, where both filled with salt water and sand. Then his furled jib spontaneously unfurled, flapping so violently that it had shredded itself in minutes. Shortly thereafter, a shackle on his anchor road failed, sending the whole operation on an exciting nocturnal cruise across the bay. While he listed his grievances, he became more frustrated and finally said, Screw it! I quit! Packed up his tools, cranked his engine and started back for San Diego. As he rounded the point, I noticed his Mexican courtesy flag had been almost entirely vaporised by the wind. All that remained was the edge hemming and the embroidered eagle. We gave thanks. We only had an evil dinghy to contend with. Whatever was after that guy was stronger black magic. That's not to say that Coconut wasn't causing problems, because she was. She almost always is except when riding atop Orca's cabin. When she's conveyed along on her lofty perch, with ocean-front view, dry and warm and basking in the sunshine, she can be downright agreeable. But if you take her down, and put her to work, like we just did south of Turtle Bay, she attacks. we just anchored off of a beautiful white sand strip of beach, backed by cacti, Using the binoculars, we could see hundreds of magnificent seashells, the thought of which drove Kara into a frenzy. We filled coconut with everything we needed for a delightful day lounging on the beach. Collecting sacks, a packed lunch, fishing gear and warm clothes. Kara, confessing to a dark premonition, decided to wear her wetsuit as we rowed ashore. The shore break was of an ominously familiar size and ferocity, but this time I approached it more cautiously. To get a better handle on the steering, I lashed an oar across the stern, which should give better leverage than the small tiller we'd been using previously. Between sets, we paddled like mad, catching a smaller wave. Coconut, predictably, tried to slew left, then right to capsize, but with the longer oar, I was able to keep her bow aimed vaguely towards the beach. Now surfing at great speed, Coconut cunningly shifted all buoyancy from bow to stern. 
Kara, sensing impending disaster, scrambled onto my lap at the transom. Regardless, the bow dove determinedly below the surface, impacting the sandy bottom with a resounding crunch. All forward momentum was briefly translated to vertical velocity as the stern rose up and tipped over the bow. Both passengers, cringing in the back, were launched forward, airborne, in an explosion of gear. We splattered into several inches of water over concrete-like sand, spread-eagled and faced down. The dinghy burbled contentedly upside down in the waves before settling to the seafloor. Most of our gear either never landed or did so and was instantly swallowed by the desert. I hauled Coconut ashore, soundly berated her, bailed her out, loaded our things back aboard and pushed her, swimming, back out to Orca. South of the border, we'd started to catch fish. It had taken a while to get the kinks ironed out of our trolling technique. I'd given up on my fishing pole, which required both skill and a conscious operator. Instead, we were using hand lines, shot cord, a hundred feet of parachute cord, ten feet of two hundred pound test monofilament, and a big double hooked lure. Not very sporting. Smaller fish would drag for hours before we noticed them. The bigger fish would usually strike at sunset, just before dinner, when Kara was at her hungriest. The line would whip tight and Orca would slow. There would be some jumping and splashing at first, but we'd let it drag. When the fish was thoroughly bushed, I'd put the line on a sheet winch and wind it in. Kara, it's a good-sized yellow fin. I'll let him go, too big. We didn't have a refrigerator. We'd never finished the meat before it rotted. But I'm hungry. This was the problem with catching fish at dinner time. You can't possibly eat this tuna before it rots. We'll just let him go and get a smaller one. I don't want a smaller one. I want this one. I'm really, really hungry. I didn't want to get between Kara and food, especially at dinner. For my own safety, I gaffed the fish. It filled half the cockpit, thrashing. Kara was still too hungry to appreciate the task she'd taken on. I filleted, cubed, added wasabi, and we started in. About an hour later, a quarter of a fillet down, she started to lose steam. Huh, he looked a bit smaller in the water, didn't he? No, it still looked like half your body weight in fish. We had raw fish for dinner, then dessert. For breakfast, it was pan-seared. Lunch was sautéed with onions and garlic. Sometimes there was soy sauce. Sometimes teriyaki. But twenty-four hours after death, I was nervous about the meat. Kara, still hungry, thought it was fine. She'd make soup, gallons of soup. I fell by the wayside. Kara soldiered on. Eventually she conquered. A forty-five-pound tuna in two days. I had to tip my hat. I couldn't look at a tuna steak for weeks. Kara, unfazed, tossed the hand line back into our wake. 
At Dad's insistence, we had to stop at San Juanico, a remote little village tucked up into Bahia Escorpion. There was a fantastic surf break. We'd be fools to miss it, he warned. He'd been driving down for years in an insane caffeine fueled road-tripping tradition. He once convinced my brother to go with him, said it'd be some kind of father-and-son bonding experience. Never go to San Juanico with Dad. He's crazy, unstable. Tommy didn't want to talk about it. He seemed traumatised. Well, first he watches the swell forecast real close. Car's been packed for weeks, fueled up, everything perfect. He calls it a surgical strike. Quick in, quick out. He claimed it was a 24-hour drive, but it wasn't. It was 24 hours once you reached the border, each way. He's got a gallon jug of coffee, an iron bladder and concrete bowels. These are the rules. No stops except for gas. No music. I can't stand music. No reading. No sleeping. I'm not your damn chauffeur. Only Dad drives. Doesn't trust anyone else. The atmosphere is tense. There's no talking except when he growls, Mugs empty. Poor. The second twelve hours are on dirt washboard. He's too cheap to run the AC. Bad for fuel economy. So his window's down the whole time, sand billowing in and filling all your orifices. We're staring straight ahead in silence, sweat dripping, faces caked in dust paste. Dad's getting tired, tempers flaring, eyes bloodshot, teeth rattling, hands shaking, coffee running low. We reach the surf, the waves are knee high, so he brews more coffee and disappears into the bush for a while to catch up on his bowel schedule. Then he paddles out, but he's so strung out he can't wait his turn and cuts everybody off. Somehow, everybody is good-natured and it's all a big joke. They think he's a real character. I was embarrassed. After a few days sleeping in the dirt, swells over. We go all the way back, another 30 hours, driving in awkward silence. Worst road trip of my life. We loved the place. There was a single dusty restaurant consisting of a trailer and thatched patio called El Burro Primavera, the sprung donkey. The mascot tied to a post sweltering in the parking lot didn't look sprung, but we were. The Pacifico was cold and came in litre-and-a-half bottles called whales, balenas. After six hours surfing, there was nothing like it. Excuse me, miss, uh, waitress, can you bring me a couple more whales? Cara would roll her eyes. You drink like... Una Belena. But that's the point, isn't it? We'd been anchored scarcely a day when a sailing skiff pulled alongside Orca. Isaac placed himself at our service and talked me into coming for a cruise. I piled in his dinghy and we ran out the point to check the surf. When we got to the first break, Isaac signalled to the beach and held up two fingers. A figure emerged from a tinted SUV, grabbed a board and paddled out. Isaac introduced us. 
This is Mike, a great kid. He's on beer duty today. And indeed he was, a balena under each arm. Gracias. One for each of us. I was scared, suspicious. Why were these people being so friendly? Mike wasted no time inviting us ashore to his place, and I cautiously accepted. We drove north into the desert past large plots of vegetables. What's that? Kara asked. She was hungry and hadn't seen anything but fish, rice and beans in weeks. Community garden. We all pitch in on Tuesdays. It's a co-op. You're welcome too. We drove past the houses, out into the desert scrub and cacti. I was confused, wary. Maybe Mike was going to murder us and dump our bodies in the desert. We were tourist surfers from out of town, after all. Are we still going to your house? I pressed nervously. Yeah. You see, I wanted to retire, but I'm young and poor. Don't have the money for the whole retirement home setup. Instead, I buy scrapped Mexican school buses for a few bucks and park them out in the desert. It takes a day to cut the seats out, but then you're golden. We pulled into a dusty clearing in the cactus and walked around his buses. There were three, bedroom, kitchen and surfboard room. I'm getting another bus later this week, so I think I'll have to borrow my buddy's bulldozer and rearrange. Only this one still runs. He pointed to a rusty yellow heap. When the surf gets really good, I pick up two dozen balenas, load my surfboards and drive her down onto the beach for a few days. Instant clubhouse. I thought I could see a few problems with his strategy. Doesn't it get bloody hot during the day? The air was wavering above the buses, the hills behind distorted. Heat rolled out the open windows. What about rust? Do you have to repaint? Paint? He gave me a strange look. Man, you're in Mexico now. The rust holes provide ventilation. The swell came up. The town shut down, locked up and paddled out. Everyone was strangely and inexplicably friendly. Trucks parked in circles on the beach, drinking balenas around the bonfire. The community, half Mexican, half gringo, was on a first-name basis. The surf was civilised, people taking turns, chatting, hooting and cheering. I'd never seen anything like it, and my suspicion changed to amazement. These people were being genuinely cordial. The waves could wrap around the sand point for a mile, peeling like rolled paper. Where it reached the end of the bay, surfers were stumbling out of the water on burning legs, slapping hands, catching rides or strolling up the beach for a balena and to do it again. At dusk word would circulate. Party at Isaac's. Fish soup at Mike's. Movie night at the Burro. On our last night in San Juanico, they took us to the chess club. I was puzzled. What's at the chess club? Chess? A little. Isaac led us into an unmarked shack in a parking lot on the edge of town. Inside, a wall of tequila bottles commanded the room. 
we recognised everyone from the beach. They were playing chess in a distracted sort of way, which was understandable given the number of empty margarita glasses scattered about. We had a round and paid in US dollars, which went into the bartender's pocket. After we walked to the edge of town, looking out into the desert, I asked Isaac, what was that place? Just a little spot for us old-timers to hang out. There's no proper bar in town anymore. It was closed down in a legal dispute. San Juanico is changing. If you ever come back, it won't be like it is now. I feel bad for young people like you and Mike. This will all be gone. What do you mean? There's a saying in Mexico, bad roads bring good people. Good roads, bad people. Look. I looked. The sun was setting over our shoulders, the lighting pink. At the end of town, the only road turned from cobbled to sand. The track snaked to the east and up into the dry hills. At the very top of the ridge, there was movement and the road went dark. I see it, a steamroller. They're paving the road, aren't they? Isaac nodded solemnly. Last year there was twelve hours of driving on treacherous sand and bouldery washboard to get to San Juanico. This year three. The pavement will reach us by summer. Already real estate values have spiked. Developers are positioning themselves, cutthroat with big lawyers, paying bribes, buying government officials. Six months ago there was a campground and margarita bar on the point overlooking the surf. After a good day, we'd drink tequila and watch the sunset into the waves from that bar. Now the land is too valuable to camp on, or even for a restaurant. It's been sold, and will become houses, mansions. I thought of Dad rattling over 150 miles of washboard in his tiny Toyota, white knuckles around his coffee mug, dust cloud billowing off his beard, longboards stuck out the back window, Mike pushing a broken school bus full of surfboards through the desert with a bulldozer, shirtless, blonde hair flying in the desiccated breeze, Isaac dropping everything to row through the surf to welcome Orca, a strange boat invading his special place. Terrible, awful roads. Then I thought of the welcome we'd received in San Diego. I thought of Laguna Beach, Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, Ensenada, black Mercedes in wide driveways, wealthy cruise ship automatons in matching Aloha shirts, sugar cube houses encrusting the cliffs in gated infestations, blocky condos, hotels, strip malls, Parking lots, road rage, traffic, politics, finances, assets, liabilities, credit cards, money, hometown. Fantastic roads, though. Stand in front of the mirror Hold your shoulders back Powder your face Lily white, the old-fashioned way Photograph of your father Watches proudly from the metal box 
and recorded by Adam Hopton and produced by myself, Ben Burbank Green. The music is by kind permission of Claire and the Reasons from their album KR51. Oh, the song is Make Them Laugh, Somebody Asked. Special thanks to Adam, Graham, James, Sarah, Claire and Olivia and to all of you who are following this podcast. I encourage you to buy the book because quite simply, it's great. (laughs) 